Just Thinking is now available on the Family Radio app. If you're not familiar with Family Radio, you're in for a treat. Family Radio is a different kind of radio station. We are passionate about the Word of God. If you like the Just Thinking podcast, you'll love our bold biblical teachers like John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and many more. Our stories of hope testify to the power of Christ to change lives. And our music will help you worship God throughout the day. Classic hymns, new hymns, and worship rich in theology. We are honored to add Just Thinking to the Family Radio app. Find out more at familyradio.org or download the Family Radio app from your favorite app store. Family Radio and Just Thinking, coming together to keep you thinking from a gospel point of view. Hey, it's Virgil here. I'm telling you about a great way to get your day rolling. The pre-game proverb with John Rayner. The pre-game proverb is a daily devotional each morning that goes through Solomon's writings. And right now, John is working through a verse-by-verse exposition of Ecclesiastes. The pre-game proverb online at pregameproverb.blog and on all streaming platforms. The pre-game proverb with John Rayner, a biblical way to start the day. Hello and welcome, 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 welcome to Just Thinking Podcast. Podcast. It is another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. What's going on? Oh my. It's been too long, man. It's been too long. Obviously, it's been too long. I got a little choked up there, bro. What's going on, man? What's going on, V? Good to see you, bro. Good to be back man, behind it's the just, mic again with you once more, bro. Back behind the mic. It's good to see your face, man. We're back at it. Man, it's been a minute, right? It's been over a couple months, I think, man, since our last episode, since episode 111 on activist mm-hmm. theology. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's been a while, man. It's been a while. But we're back. Like you always say, man, we're back. 
We're back. We are back. We are back. Now, glad to be back. Glad to be back behind the microphone. We won't go in a ton of, of detail about where we've all been, but I, I'd be remiss, man, if, if if I didn't say how proud I was of what you guys were doing down in Denton, Texas, man, with uh, with the Wokeness in the Gospel Conference and all that you guys <clears throat> did there, the video that came out of that, the stuff that you guys were doing. It's amazing. I know our our our, our dear brother Owen Strain is doing some doing yeoman's work, man, and, he really and he's is. got a brand new book coming out. Yeah. Uh, I believe it's Christianity and Wokeness, I believe. Right, Christianity and Wokeness. I think, matter of fact, it's going to be due out around uh, the end of July. Uh, so, yes. yeah, that's coming up by Owen Strand, our boy Owen, Christianity and Wokeness. Make sure you pick up a copy of that. Yeah, absolutely. And then we've got a, we've got our, our, our book coming out here in just a bit, uh, Just Thinking About the State. Uh, due out August 28th, which reminds me, I got some work to do. After this episode, man, I've got to grind on some edits, man, and get that stuff turned into our to our publisher, That's man. True, I'm bro. behind we, this. We, we, we cannot miss that deadline, V. We got pre-orders I, I, out listen. there waiting, man. I mean, come on, bro. <laughs> Man, you're going to make us look really bad, bro, if you don't get No, <laughs> no, no. Listen, you know me, man. I may be last minute, but I always deliver. So I know we'll you get do, it. We'll get I know it. you do. Listen, if I could backtrack for just a second, man, back to Jim, sure. Texas. And the wokeness and the conference, uh, wokeness and the gospel conference that we held at Denton sure. Bible Church. Um, yeah, I, w- I want to shout out, man. This episode that we're recording today on "Did God Really Say?" This episode, we want to dedicate to little twelve-year-old Allison. Little twelve-year-old mm. Allison. I had the pleasure, matter of fact, V. Let me just say this, man. You were sorely missed at the oh, wokeness wow. and the gospel conference, man. Sorely missed. Wow. But during one of the breaks, man, we were in the exhibition hall. And uh, there were several people, man, waiting uh, at the Just Thinking uh, table to uh, speak with me, Chris. Real Time was there. We also had a couple other members of our Just Thinking team. Uh, Joe, the wizard, uh, was there as well, our graphics guy, as well as Charles uh, Simpson were there as well. But little Allison, man, she hung off to the side by herself, waiting until a line of about 35, 40 people made its way up to us and I talked. I spoke to every person individually, but little Allison waited patiently uh, wow. along, maybe a few feet from where her parents were standing until everyone was gone. She came up to introduce herself to me individually. We we spoke for a few few moments. We took some pictures. But Allison wow. is a huge fan of the Just Thinking podcast. She wow. told me personally that she listens to every episode with her parents. Whenever wow. we drop a new episode, she listens with her parents. She's twelve years old. So just amazing. So Allison, I want to say again, we're dedicating this episode to you. We love you. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to your parents for leveraging the Just Thinking podcast to help uh, educate you and inform you biblically uh, on how to uh, address a lot of the issues that we're facing in the world today and that the church is facing. So Allison, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. Bro, I, I just want to briefly say, man, you were definitely missed. I was at the SBC convention at the uh, conference, uh, the Founders Conference, their pre-conference there. We had a great time connecting with those folks. And uh, it was it was shocking because I know our audience primarily, uh, uh, you know, is well, it, it actually it actually crosses all walks. So I was I was going to say that it's just reform yeah, circles, it's but crossover. it really isn't. It really crosses <clears throat> all walks of life. And I think I'm I'm always impressed when others who aren't a part of that immediate circle, you know, stop me and ask me, Hey, you know, Hey, Omaha, where's, where's Daryl? Are you uh, yeah. is he coming or, or the like? And so, but yeah. man, it's always a blessing to run into uh, the folks who listen to and love the just thinking podcast. So, but man, it, it's, it's been good to be back. 
get get back behind the microphone and chop it up with you. I know we got a lot of ground to cover tonight. Uh, we've been traveling. We're back, and uh, this is this this episode, man. I, I'm 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 ready to rock and roll, man. How you feeling about it? Yeah, this is this is some serious business. Well, it's not like we don't do serious business whenever we're behind the mic here at the Just Thinking Podcast, but. Yeah, this episode right here, man, we've been waiting for over two months to do this episode. The topic that we're dealing with here under the title, Did God Really Say?, is actually one that was suggested to us by several of our listeners. And we don't normally make a habit of taking requests. But this is one of those issues, man, that just keeps bubbling to the surface. It just does not go away. Not that it's going to go away even after we deal with it here, but we've never dedicated a full episode to this issue. We've alluded to it. We basically conveyed our position on this issue with, with regard to what Scripture says about it. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward, man, to delving into this issue with you. Um, and, and it's been a couple months, man. So, so hopefully we can take up where we left off. But before we begin, Omaha, I just want to say, I want to say and take a moment to say to our listeners, not that they don't know this, but I want everyone to know that we take very seriously what we do here on the Justing Podcast. Okay. Mm-hmm. We take it very seriously. And by God's grace, the Just Thinking Podcast now has listeners in more than 170 countries around the world. Now, we have no idea who those listeners are, but then we don't need to know who they are. The primary reason we put in the level of time and effort we do to prepare for these episodes, Omaha, is our awareness, okay? Our awareness that we are accountable to God to do the very best we can to exposit his word accurately particularly in light of the theological subject matter that we deal with on this platform that God has graciously given to you and me. Now that you and I are accountable to God is what makes an episode like the one we're recording today, such a weighty task for us. Like Mm -hmm. I said, we don't take this lightly. Now I say that in light of this admonition from James chapter three, verse one, it says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Okay. James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, that is as teachers, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now the word teacher in James 3, 1 is the Greek noun didaskalos. Okay. Didaskalos. That's D-I-D-A-S-K-A-L-O-S. Didaskalos, which refers to one who teaches others concerning the things of God and the duties of man, okay? Now, that definition, I believe, is an apt description, Omaha, of what you and I endeavor to do every time we step behind these microphones to record an episode of the Just Thinking Podcast. It is, as I said earlier, a very weighty task and one that we don't take lightly at all. Now, it's with that in mind that I want to take a moment to thank all of our Just Thinking Podcast listeners. Like I said, it's been a couple of months, man, since we've been behind the microphones. I want to take a moment to thank all of our Just Thinking Podcast listeners and supporters across our 170-plus nation global footprint for their constant encouragement, their continuing prayers, and conversely, for trusting us to help them as individuals, as families, and as churches to navigate biblically what can be some very confusing and complicated issues and themes. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, though, as I say that, I realize also that there are those who listen to us who want us to fail in carrying out our task. I'm not at all naive to the fact that in the same way that we have our loyal listeners and supporters, we also have our haters and our detractors, mm-hmm. people who, for whatever reason, 
would like to see the Just Thinking podcast go out of the podcast business altogether. I realize that. I'm not naive to that. In fact, Omaha, I would venture to say that there may be someone within the sound of my voice right now who, despite their best efforts and intentions, is dealing with his or her own contingent of haters and detractors, people who are hoping you will fail and that you will not succeed in the goals you're endeavoring to accomplish as best you know God's will for your life. Uh People who, perhaps out of a spirit of envy or jealousy or spitefulness, are wishing the worst for you, not your best. They're wishing the worst for you. And if that's you, then I have something for you in the form of a little jingle I've pinned that I trust will be of some encouragement to you. Okay, Omaha, you ready? Let's do it. Let me clear my throat. All right, here we go. Let your haters be your motivators. They're just upset that they're not more like you. Let your haters be your motivators. Pay them no mind, keep doing what you do. Let your haters be your motivators. If they come at you, just move right on past. Let your haters be your motivators and keep listening to the Just Thinking Podcast. <laughs> v, what you think? <laughs> that's for our haters, bro. That's for our haters, and that's for that's our listeners pretty good, who have man. That's pretty good. That's that's for our haters, and that's for our listeners who have haters. So y'all, <laughs> listeners, if you have haters, be encouraged by that little jingle that I just that I just went through that, real quick. Let your haters be your motivator. <laughs> what do you got to say, V? That's good stuff, man. That's real good stuff, man. Listen, at the end of the day, man, we we don't we got we got a cup for those haters, man. <laughs> and 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 it's three it's three words, right? I I don't, don't care care. <laughs> Uh, we we got a coffee cup where we start out our day with I don't I don't care. Uh, we do we do what we do, and, and at the at the end of the day, man, the the podcast continues to grow. Folks continue to enjoy it, man. The the, the bar network continues to grow. We we mentioned Owen at the top. We've got him now as a part of the bar network and uh, and his uh, his podcast, the antithesis. We we love for folks to to check that out when they get the opportunity, man. And and uh, we we just we just keep doing what we do, man. That's exactly, how we bro. that's how we roll. That's why I said in the in the jingle, man, you can't pay attention to your haters. Just keep doing what you do. That's Just it. keep doing what you That's do. Your it. haters are going to hate you. They're going to hate you. All right. So here we are again, Omaha. Here we are again dealing with yet another topic mm-hmm. that essentially, okay, that essentially brings into question the, the sufficiency of Scripture again. It seems like mm-hmm. every issue we deal with always comes back to the sufficient, sufficiency of Scripture. And here we are yet again addressing a, quote, controversial, unquote, subject that has been raised not from outside the church not from outside the church but from inside the church right 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 not from outside but from inside the church as seems to be all too often the case in these times in which by god's providence we're living today it's Mm -hmm. interesting because as i say that i'm reminded of the just thinking podcast episode we did omaha titled slavery reparations okay i'm reminded of that episode in which i made the comment that quote slavery is an issue that, quote, simply will not die. Slavery is an issue that just will not die. And the reason it won't die is because we won't let it die. Right, right. The reason we won't let it die is because there is benefit to us in not letting it die. Uh It's no different when it comes to the matter of women's roles within the church. It's an issue that just will not die. 
Mm-hmm. It won't die because we won't let it God, let it die. Right. Now, now, God has clearly spoken on the matter of the role of women and men, for that matter, in the church. And yet there are professing Christians, male and female, many of whom carry great influence within the evangelical church today, who continue to broach this issue in a way that is patently divisive and disruptive to the body of Christ. Right. Now, we'll expand on that a bit later in this episode, but I want to say at the outset of our discussion, Omaha, that for me, and I know you, you share a similar mindset on this, but for me, the topic we're discussing in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast is less a matter of complementarianism versus egalitarianism or are some other worldly terms that are so often used to describe what the word of God views as a very simple and uncomplicated question. Mm-hmm. That question is captured by Christ himself in Luke six forty six, where Jesus asks rhetorically, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? It's really that simple. This issue is really that simple. The rhetorical question Jesus poses in Luke 6.46 presents to us the only question that is paramount to any conversation that a professing Christian might engage in on this matter of biblical roles in the church. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Now, intrinsic to the phrase, do what I say, is the teaching of the apostles as well. Now, we're going to delve more into that later in this episode. But as I said earlier, Omaha, the reason we're dedicating an entire episode of the Just Thinking podcast to this issue of women pastors and women preachers. And when, let me just give our listeners a heads up. Whenever you hear me use the word, the, 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 the phrase women pastors or women preachers, go ahead and assume that I'm using air quotes there. OK, go ahead and use go ahead and assume that I'm using air quotes there. All right. But the reason we're dedicating an entire episode of our podcast to this issue is because certain people within the church have chosen to complicate, convolute, and confuse what is a clear teaching from Scripture, in that not unlike Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden, they refuse to submit to God's clear command on this issue because in their sinful arrogance, if I may speak metaphorically, some of them are still trying to eat from that one tree that God has commanded them not to eat from. Now, this issue of women preachers, this issue of women preachers and women pastors isn't a matter of one ism versus another ism. This is an obedience issue. This is an obedience issue. It is simple as that. Now, before I turn it over to you, Omaha, for your thoughts, I want to get your initial thoughts on this topic. I have a public service announcement to make. I have a PSA to make, (laughs) and it is this. Okay, the PSA is this. If there happens to be anyone listening to me right now who perhaps is curious as to how nuanced I'm going to be on this subject, mm-hmm. you might want to stop listening right now and go listen to something else, because I promise you, you're going to be extremely disappointed with what you're about to hear from me. Right. You're going to get no nuance on this issue from me. OK, I just want to make that clear at the outset. What do you think, Omaha? Your thoughts, bro? I think, man, to, to open, that was a that was a strong, strong opening. And it makes very clear uh, the issue that is that is at hand as we open this episode of the Just Thinking podcast, I want to take you back to something that you said at the very beginning. <clears throat> you said you said the controversial subject, right? right. You kind of put that co- controversial subject that 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 has been raised has actually been raised not outside of the church, right. but but from, from inside the church. Yeah, and and I, I I completely agree with you that while many 
constantly wrestle with the role of women in the church. Sadly, however, as we've witnessed in far too many of these quote-unquote controversial issues, the church is actually taking its cues from the world. Man, come on. Right? <clears throat> what, what I mean is this, man. G- g- let, let, me, let, me, let me kind of break this down in this way. Do your thing, bro. C- can you imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, deciding on the day of Pentecost, just as Peter is about to preach, that the apostle needed to put his toxic masculinity aside and sit down? You know, since since it was evident that that she, Mary, was the one who spent most of the time with Jesus, shouldn't Mary be the one who leads Man, 3,000 to Christ on, on the day dude. of Pentecost? Come on, right? bro. We, 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 can't, we can't imagine this idea in any way, shape, or form. And there's a reason why we can't imagine it. It's because this kind of idea would never enter the pages of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And you might ask, well, why, why is that? Well, it's, it's because the, the modern woman— with one hand on her hip and the other hand waving her finger, pointing at everyone else, talking about she don't need no man to do anything, is the one that's at the forefront of the controversy, Mm-mm. right? Furthermore, men aren't necessary for, for, the, for the modern woman. Men aren't necessary when a strong woman needs a platform. Right. So at the end of the day, these are, these are the kinds of things that are as, as, at, at issue, now I I know the correct way to say that is she doesn't need a man, but, right. but I, you know I was saying she don't need no right. man. I'm trying to you know trying to emphasize I got the point you, bro. there. Okay, go ahead and bring <laughs> go ahead and bring it from the crib, man. Bring it from the crib. <laughs> so so here's here's at the end of the day the, the 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 modern woman who doesn't believe that she needs a man, and and sadly that that set of beliefs like many other isms, feminism and racism. They've actually kicked down the doors of the church and they've demanded their rights. Mm-hmm. Now think of it, mm-hmm. demanding rights in the house of the Lord, Yep. Which, which takes me to the second point that you made. I love that you quoted the verse from Luke, Luke 6, 46, where Jesus asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what, what, do not do what I say? When you think about the culture of modern women today, let me pause here and say in our discussion, I'm, I'm going to contrast the modern woman from biblical womanhood. Gotcha, right? gotcha. There's, there's a big difference. There's a contrast that, that I actually want to make there. The first thought about the modern woman today is that, G, a, 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 is that a Jesus who commands her to do anything uh, would be a foreign deity to her, mm-hmm. right? The, for, the, for the modern woman today who, who has a Jesus or thinks about Jesus commanding her to prove, prove her his love, you know, prove her love rather for him mm-hmm. by obeying commands. That that's a foreign, yeah. that's a foreign deity to the yeah. modern woman. Mm-hmm. This idea is especially true in a culture of activist feminists seeking power in every facet of culture. Mm-hmm. F- far too many activists, feminists, and cultural Christians do not serve a Jesus who would tell them, them to obey a command or follow what he says. To them, the very idea of obedience is more toxic, masculine, patriarchal. It's repulsive, mm-hmm. revolting, uh, and, and any idea that, that that any other negative idea that you could posit to to God, uh, the, the Son of God, commanding them to do what He says. The Jesus they would serve would never command them to do something with which they disagreed. Right, and anyone daring to argue otherwise is a devil for the very thought of it. Now, I know we're going to cover a lot of ground, so I just wanted to kind of open with that open, with kind of that that opening uh, shot across the bow, so to speak. That was a powerful shot, bro. I appreciate you doing that, man. And you know, folks who are not from the crib, they need to understand that 
Sometimes you need to use a little broken English to get the emphasis. <laughs> so when you, when you say she doesn't see, she doesn't need a man. Doesn't nearly sound so. It, it just it, doesn't have the same. No, it doesn't. It doesn't communicate the it, same. It doesn't thing. convey no, no, no. the same. It doesn't have the same oomph as when you say <laughs> she don't need no man. Right. <laughs> you, it's, th- 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 there's something to be said about that. That's about as nuanced as I'm going to get in this episode. By the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now. I want to suggest something, Omaha, to our listeners, specifically as it relates to this matter of the role of women in the church, and that something is this. I want to suggest that those who would say to themselves that they see, quote, no problem, unquote, with women preaching in the church are suffering suffering from a crisis of identity. They're suffering from an identity crisis. And what I mean by that is that those individuals, at least to me, seem to be somewhat confused about who God is in contrast to the reality of who they are. Right. That's what I mean by crisis of identity going on here. That's good. Conversely, they also seem perplexed with respect to whom the church does belong and to whom the church does not belong. Come on, man. Come on. Those are important considerations as we endeavor to flesh out this matter of the role of women in the church, because it takes a certain amount of hubris to place oneself in an ecclesiastical role or position that God has expressly forbidden you to assume. Now, what I'm talking about here, Omaha, is what the French reformer John Calvin referred to as, quote, knowledge of God, unquote, and, quote, knowledge of self, unquote. Yes. So Calvin yes. is contrasting here knowledge of God versus knowledge of self. In, his, in book one of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin said this, quote, the whole sum of our wisdom, wisdom that is, which deserves to be called true and assured, broadly consists of two parts. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. The purpose of the first of these is to show not only that there is one God whom all must worship and honor, but also that he is the fount of all truth, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, judgment, mercy, power, and holiness. The purpose of the second, the purpose of the knowledge of ourselves, is to show us our weakness, misery, vanity, and vileness to fill us with despair, distrust, and hatred of ourselves, and then to kindle in us the desire to seek God, for in him is found all that is good, and of which we ourselves are emptied and deprived. Conversely, still quoting Calvin, conversely, we observe that no one ever attains clear knowledge of self unless he has first gazed upon the face of the Lord and then turns back to look upon himself. Uh Deeply rooted in all of us is an arrogance which persuades us that we are righteous, truthful, wise, and holy. Only clear evidence that we are unrighteous, deceitful, foolish, and vile will convince us of the contrary. We feel no such conviction, Calvin says, if all we do is look upon ourselves and not also upon the Lord, unquote. That was John Calvin from book one of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, contrasting knowledge of God versus the knowledge of ourselves. Now, I believe those words from Calvin to be germane to what we're discussing in this episode, Omaha, and that before we can even attempt to broach the topic of women's roles in the church, specifically as it relates to the oxymoronic idea of women preachers. We would all do well to serve ourselves a dose or or 10 
a dose or 10 of humility. Okay, we would all do well to serve ourselves a dose or 10 of humility by reminding ourselves of who we really are in light of who God is. And as we do that, my hope is that we'll come to realize that as blood bought followers of Jesus Christ, the last thing you or I have a right to boast about is what you or you or I have a right to do. Right. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. The last thing you or I have a right to do is boast about what you or I have a right to do. Now I would ask our listeners to consider what I just said in light of what the 17th century Puritan theologian John Flavel says very simply yet very profoundly in his book titled The Method of Grace, subtitled The Work of the Holy Spirit in Applying the Redemptive Work of Christ. John Flavel says this, quote, they that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Yeah, that's unquote. good. That's good. Flavel said, they that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Now, conversely, along those same lines as John Flavel, it was Gilbert Keith Chesterton, better known as G.K. Chesterton, the philosopher and theologian of the early 20th century, who said this, quote, if I had only one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. The more I see of existence, and especially of modern practical and experimental existence, the more I am convinced of the reality of the old religious thesis that all evil began with some attempt at superiority. Unquote. Wow. That's good. That was G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton said, Mm -hmm. if I had only one sermon to preach, it would be a sermon against pride. The more I see of existence, that is the more he sees of the world and especially of modern practical and experimental, experimental existence the more I am convinced of the reality of the old religious thesis that all evil began with some attempt at superiority. Now, I cite those words from Flavel and Chesterton because according to God's word, allowing a woman to preach or teach from the pulpit is sin. And the common thread in all sin is pride. Mm -hmm. It's been that way since Genesis 3 when Eve Mm -hmm. made the conscious decision to trust the words of the serpent rather than the words of God. Now, regardless of the specific sin you or I choose to commit against God, and every sin ultimately is against God, it is pride. Regardless of the sin, it is pride that is at the Mm -hmm. root of that sin. Again, what we're dealing with here is fundamentally an obedience issue. In other words, are you going to obey the word of God or not? It's that mm-hmm. simple. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to keep reiterating that point throughout this episode, Omaha. And to that end, I want to confess that I wholeheartedly concur with theologian and Arthur Wayne Grudem, who, in my personal opinion, succinctly and accurately captures in his book titled Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth what is fundamentally at issue with regard to this matter of women in the pulpit. Again, quoting from Wayne Grudem's book titled Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, Grudem says this, quote, I believe that ultimately the effective authority of Scripture to govern our lives is at stake in this controversy, this controversy being the matter of women preachers, women in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Grudem continues, the issue is not whether we say we believe the Bible is the word of God or that we believe it is without error. The issue is whether we actually obey it. When, yeah. it, when its teachings are unpopular and conflict with the dominant viewpoints in our culture. I'm going to pause here and repeat that. 
Grudem says the issue is not whether we say we believe the Bible is the word of God or that we believe it is without error. The issue is whether we actually obey it when its teachings are unpopular and conflict with the dominant viewpoints in our culture. If we do not obey it, then the effective authority of of God to govern his people and his church through his word has been eroded. Unquote. That was Wayne Grudem from Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. And with those words from Wayne Grudem, we have come full circle in that we find ourselves right back at square one at Luke 646. And what may very well be the most important of all the rhetorical questions that are to be found in Scripture. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me go back, man, to, to a quote that you you made earlier, because as you quoted it, I didn't want to interrupt your your thought process, but it was the it was the quote that you did. I think it was from John Flavel, where where he said, "They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud." Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about that, I, I immediately thought about about you and me. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons I say that is because here lately we've gotten a chance to kind of travel, and we we get some incredible responses from people who you know with with tear filled eyes tell us, "Hey, you guys really have." have helped me understand some of these important issues. And, you know, and it'd be real easy for common guys who aren't, you know, mega pastors or, you know, anything like that to get real puffed up. But the reality is you and I both, we, we, we know ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I know, so as I know result- myself so well, I don't want anyone else to know myself. Right. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> So, so it, it we, so it's not one of those things we where, where we get caught up in in you know in, in the excitement and the hype of, of of what of what's been coming and and that's that part of this journey has been refreshing and I, and for me man journeying this with you it's been it's been a blessing to watch how you interact with people uh, whenever we're somewhere you will spend gobs of time regardless of how long we've been on a platform you will spend an enormous amount of time talking to one person at a time. I'm I'm more the quick hitter. I'll I'll kind of <laughs> I'll kind of come in and say a few words and and kind of do my thing and, and and press on, but you will spend an enormous amount of time and give your time and give it yourself. But again, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that uh I, I know me. Uh I know how sinful Virgil is mm-hmm. and I know my need for a savior and so you know, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to stick my foot where it doesn't belong. I'm not going to I'm not going to try to press up on a on a platform that doesn't belong to me. Now, again, all of that was off script. But when you when you said that, it, it just it reminded me uh, when you, you quoted from Flavel, it reminded me of kind of the journey uh, that we're on. My, and one, one of the kindest compliments I think that I could ever receive from from someone after they've met us when maybe they've taken a picture with us and they've posted it uh, was, man, how you know, these guys were incredibly humble, man, and in, in, in their approach to. Uh, to what they do. And so, man, that's a, that's a great benefit. But let me go back to what you said. The last thing that you mentioned was, again, on the subject of pride. Let me, let me start by commenting on the deficiency of humility in our current culture. Mm. Culture, especially relevant, focused Christian culture, they hardly embrace uh, humility. Right? The vast majority of culture, ironically, embraces victimhood as a badge of self-righteous honor. Mm-hmm. This new honorable distinction of victim now allows one to hold status, recognition, and elevation. With this new position, this self-identified oppression bolsters the oppressed to demand rights from the oppressor. 
Modern-day evangelicalism, sadly, is no different in this regard. Regarding women's roles, mainly women as preachers, virtue signaling language about this subject is off the chart. Now, as we, as you and I had talked about doing this topic, uh, for you know, again, my, my radar screen is up, and so I'm watching what people are saying mm-hmm. about women preachers, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm looking here and there and seeing some crazy stuff. I actually went back to something I could not believe that was said back in the day. Let me give you an example. Tony Campolo, a famous evangelist and founder and president of the Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education, on the issue of women preachers, he said this, I couldn't believe it, quote, anyone who resists the notion of women preachers is functioning as a tool of the devil, end quote. Now, let me, let me, yeah, let me, let me, let me pause to let that comment sit in. Let me, in fact, let me, let me, let me walk you through what he said again. He said this, quote, anyone who resists the notion of women preachers is functioning as a tool of the devil, end quote. Now, let me let me continue to give you some context of what of what Campolo said. He said this, quote, it is one thing to be wrong, but that isn't wrong. That's sinful. The Bible says, neglect not the gift that is in you. And when women are gifted with the gift of preaching, anyone who frustrates that gift is an instrument of the devil, end quote. That's Tony. Yeah, that's Tony Campolo. Now, to begin with, Campolo is actually abusing the text of Scripture. Uh, in context, First Timothy four fourteen, where he gets the uh, where he gets the, the the brief quote, "Neglect not the gift that is in you," is hardly a warning that we're sinning if we don't embrace women preachers who are gifted. Uh, in fact, the context in context, Paul actually warns Timothy in the previous verses about the kinds of of wicked teaching that that I would argue that Campolo is actually. Well, I was about to say, like so, Campolo's teaching, right, <laughs> right, 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 wicked teaching like Campolo. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in first Timothy four, one, Paul writes, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to, to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. That's what, that's what that text actually says there. While I'm not suggesting that Campolo has departed from the faith, I am saying that the statement he made regarding, regarding those who oppose women teachers as functioning as a tool of the devil, that is a departure from the faithful teaching of Scripture. Now, would Campolo call the Apostle Paul a devil? You know, it's, it's, in, the same, it's in the same letter to Timothy, only a few chapters earlier where Paul writes, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, that's 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. And I know we're going to de- delve into that a little bit more deeply uh, as we move on. Now, would Campolo say that Paul is functioning as a devil for frustrating the gift of preaching in women? As it pertains to humility, let me begin by saying, and, and I've said this before, Daryl, I'm, I'm incredibly humbled anytime I get asked to go speak somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, as you and I have had the opportunity to travel around the country and speak to audiences, both large and small, I've often said to those who've brought me to some place to speak that I'm grateful that anyone desires to hear me say anything Mm -hmm. on a given topic. You know, furthermore, I know capable women who speak to audiences even more extensively than I have and do so with great ability. So this issue is not an issue of the giftedness of women, nor is it about the opportunities afforded to women who speak in public. You and I both know competent women who give talks to large audiences, and we've got a number of friends. I could list off the top of my head if Mm -hmm. I cared to uh, of who those actually are. The issue here is specific to the role of women in Christ's church. Right. That's important. 
The church isn't mine or yours to do with or, or, or to function in the way that we see fit. Molding the church to our ever-changing cultural standard isn't an option. The, ch- the church belongs to Christ. It's mm-hmm. his church, and we mm-hmm. must follow his instruction. Sadly, what we often hear from women preachers and their proponents sounds far less humble. As I poured through several statements and papers from women pastors and their advocates, most of their arguments, Daryl, sound something like this. Let me give you two of them. Number one, it's it's this. I have the right to preach. Mm-hmm. I have a right to preach. Mm-hmm. That's kind of some of the argumentation. And and, it, and again, you could you could you could you could almost see the the head shake yep. and the hand on the hip. Finger wagging again. Right. Yep. <laughs> right. Right. Now, this statement is followed by the idea that anything a man can do, a woman can do. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea here is that since we're all created in the image of God, anything a man can do, a woman can mm-hmm. do too, mm-hmm. right? This kind of position actually ignores the complementary roles designed by God for males and females as human beings, much less their office and function within the mm-hmm. church. Obviously, God created women to do things that, man, uh, that a man was not designed to do and vice versa. However, in our gender-blinded culture, we, we all want to pretend that equality means equity, mm-hmm. right? Right. We want to pretend that equality means equity. And in this case, for the feminist or womanist, we'll talk about that a little bit later, the pulpit becomes the next battle for power. Yep. However, when, when confronted, proponents then move on to statements like this. And here's, here's the last one I'll, I'll posit for this section. They argue this. Well, you're just afraid. You know, you're just afraid of the power of, of a woman. What are you, what are you afraid of? Now, as the Apostle Paul addresses this issue in his letter to Timothy, fear of women is hardly what concerns Paul. He's, he's not afraid of, of a woman in power. He's not arguing that way. Far from it. In 1 Timothy 2.12, after saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet, Paul goes on to explain the reason for this position, and he anchors this in the order of creation mm-hmm. and not culture. Mm-hmm. When he says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That's what he says there. He's not, his concern is not fear of, of women. Paul is raising an issue insofar as it pertains to women preachers. Mm-hmm. The issue is not one of punishment. Instead, this is a principle of protection. Mm-hmm. Let me say that again. The issue is not one of punishment. Instead, this is about a principle of protection. Paul argues that in the order of creation, Adam was designed for Eve's protection. Likewise, qualified pastors are intended to protect the flock of God. They not only require a gift of teaching, but they must also be prepared to provide security innately designed for men to provide in guarding against heresy. I would say more about about the subject of women preachers uh, a little bit later on, but but whenever whenever the issue is broached or advocated, these seem to be the common themes. Unfortunately, when whenever uh, culture, church culture, crosses that line, so to speak, and begins to move in the direction of women preachers, there's a there's a number of things that follow. I'll say this and stop. What often follows. And this can be seen and play and because it's already been played out in mainline Protestant denominations. What often follows is the embrace of same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what yeah. follows that is same-sex yeah. ordination. Yeah. And, and, and then what, fo- what follows that is the advocacy of every other kind of social justice 
caused. And so from there, you have activists, feminists, and womenists. They unite in an intersectional coalition and demand their rights to recreate the church in an image to their liking. And that's what's really at stake. And that's what's the problem. I'll turn it back over to you. Bro, as I listen to you, V, as I listen to you just so adroitly break that down, my mind harkens back to that jingle that I opened up with, man, at the top of the episode. <laughs> if, 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 if we didn't have haters who were already upset right. at what we said to this point, they're really angry now. Right. And what, you, at what they just heard you go through, they're really angry now. <laughs> but, as, but as we said, we don't care. We don't care. We, we, we really don't care. And we say that in the context of Galatians 1.10, if, if anyone needs context. Good, 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 good. Before I go into my commentary, man, I just want to say one thing. At the latter part of what you just said there about crossing a line. Yes. We can look back through church history and know definitively that every time we cross a line, there's always another line. Absolutely. There's man, always that's another that's line. There is always <laughs> yes. another line. And I'm, rem- I'm, I'm, I'm remembering right now the two-part episode with that we did called The Narrow Road. We did The Narrow Road Part 1, Narrow Road Part 2. Yes, and here yes. we are, man. It's like every time you use the word church and culture in the same grouping as one, as one noun, okay, church mm-hmm. culture, church as culture. one thing, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's really a contradiction in terms. But here we are in the church, man. Here we are in 2021, and the church is still trying to widen a narrow road. They're That's still good. trying to cross, they cross a line and then there's another line and then there's another line and another. Why? Because they're trying to widen the narrow road. Why? That's good, man. That's good. Why? Right? So the level of consternation, Omaha, the level of consternation we're seeing within the evangelical church over this matter of the role of women in the church is primarily though, perhaps not exclusively, primarily, but perhaps not exclusively, centered on one text of scripture, and that's the scripture that you brought up earlier, 1 Timothy 2.12, which in the non-Arminian Standard Bible translation (laughs) reads this way, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That is an apostolic instruction from the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, we're going to do some exposition on that text later in this episode, Omaha, and I'm really interested to hear what you have to say, especially given that you're a pastor and a preacher, about that particular text and how it's been weaponized right. by many evangelical feminists and womanists today so as to cause division and friction within the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. But before we do that, I want to ask our listeners to consider very seriously these words from the 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who in a sermon titled First Healing and Then Service, which he preached on April 19th, 1885, said this. This is Charles Spurgeon from his sermon, First Healing and Then Service. Quote, women are best when they are quiet. I share the Apostle Paul's feelings when he bade women to be silent in the assembly. Yet there is work for holy women. And we read of Peter's wife's mother, that she arose and ministered to Christ. She Wait, did. I got. I got. I got. I got to stop. Okay, bro. Go ahead. Do your thing, bro. <laughs> go ahead, bro. The first. Let's see. The first seven words you read would would get would get Spurgeon canceled, man. Sure. It would get him. It would get him canceled, man. I'm I'm already thinking if someone's if someone was listening to me right then in the car, 
Right. They're probably swerving after those first seven words right there <laughs> right, in that quote. Right, right. Listen, I wrestled with, okay, do I do I jump in here? Do I let I, I let you read a couple extra you know, sentences? I said, I got I gotta go back to it. Man. Omaha, I you gotta go back right to now, it. The same people who say, Well, I don't need no man. Right. Are saying, Oh no, he didn't. Right. <laughs> oh no, he didn't. Oh no, Spurgeon didn't. <laughs> oh, you from New York. Oh, no, he didn't. Right. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> Matter of fact, let me wind that one back. Yeah, yeah, rewind that. Rewind said, quote, that. Women are best when they are quiet. I share the Apostle Paul's feelings when he bade women to be silent in the assembly. Yet there is work for holy women. And we read of Peter's wife's mother that she arose and ministered to Christ. She did what she could and what... She did what she could and what she should. She did what she could and what she should, Burden said. She arose and ministered to him. Some people can do nothing that they are allowed to do, but waste their energies in lamenting that they are not called on to do other people's work. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I gotta let me let me let me. We, that's some that's a Hammond B right oh, there. Spurgeon, oh, Spurgeon oh, getting a Hammond B. <laughs> Spurgeon getting a Hammond B on that one. Spurgeon said some people can do nothing that they are allowed to do, but waste their energies in lamenting that they are not called on to do other people's work. I'm continuing to quote Spurgeon here. Blessed are they who do what they should do. It is better to be a good housewife or nurse or domestic servant than to be a powerless preacher or a graceless talker. She did not arise and prepare a lecture, nor preach a sermon, but she arose and prepared a supper, and that was what she was fitted to do. Was she not a housewife? As a housewife, let her serve the Lord. You are to minister to the Lord in the way for which you are best qualified, and that may happen to be by a living testimony to his grace in your daily calling. We greatly err when we dream that only a preacher can minister to the Lord, for Jesus has work of all sorts for all sorts of followers. Paul speaks of women who helped him much, and assuredly, as there is no idle angel, there ought be no idle Christian. We are not saved for our own sakes. But that we may be of service to the Lord and to his people, let us not miss our calling. Unquote. Wow. Wow. Said, we are Prince, not saved for our features. own sakes, but that we may be of service to the Lord and to his people, let us not miss our calling. Now, wow. I want to repeat that last sentence for the people listening to me right now who might be sitting in overflow. <laughs> Spurgeon said again. We are not saved for our own sakes, but that we, may be, that we may be of service to the Lord and to his people. Now, those words from Spurgeon should automatically raise in our minds the question of motive and cause us to examine ourselves so that we deal truthfully and honestly with God concerning the service that we render to him. Uh-huh. Spurgeon's words also point us back, Omaha, to a question I posed in our previous episode of the Just Thinking Podcast Title Activist Theology, in which I ask this question, whose church is it? Whose church is it? Now, to help us answer that question, I want to quote from a book that I'm currently reading titled The Church of Christ, 
by the 19th century Scottish minister by the name of James Bannerman. James Bannerman, that's B-A-N-N-E-R-M-A-N, who says the following in the chapter of that book titled The Notes of the Church. This is James Bannerman from the book The Church of Christ. Quote, there can be no doubt that scripture represents the, the one great object of the establishment of a church in the world to be the glory of God and the salvation of sinners by means of the publication of the gospel. For this end, the church was instituted at first. For this end, it continues to exist from one generation to another, and it is only in so far as it accomplishes this one grand object of its existence that it serves the proper and primary purpose of a church at all. Judging then by this first test, we are warranted in saying that to hold and to preach the true faith or doctrine of Christ is the only sure and infallible note or mark of a Christian church, because this is the one thing for the sake of which a church of Christ has been instituted on earth. Mm. A true faith makes a true church, and a corrupt faith a corrupt church. And should it at any time apostatize from the true faith altogether, it would, by the very act, cease to be a church of Christ in any sense at all. The church was established for the sake of the truth and not the truth for the sake of the church. Unquote. That was James Bannerman from his book, The Church of Christ. Bannerman said the church was established for the sake of the truth and not the truth for the sake of the church. Now, I want to build on Bannerman's words by quoting next from the book, Reformed Systematic Theology, subtitled Revelation and God, in which Drs. Joel Beakey and Paul M. Smalley write this, quote, We must avoid the error of seeing parts of the Bible or elements of its teaching as the Word of God, but other parts or elements as the fallible Word of man. Did you hear that? That's good. Did you hear that, listener? We must avoid the error of seeing parts of the Bible or elements of his teachings as the word of God, but other parts or elements as the fallible word of man. Samuel Taylor Coleridge lived from 1772 to 1834. I'm still quoting from the book, by the way. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, 1772 to 1834, the poet and philosopher of Romanticism, acknowledged that some elements of the Bible arose from direct revelation but he denied it that the whole book is infallible, for he believed that parts of it are inspired only in the sense that their authors enjoyed a high level of grace and communion with God. In other words, they meant well, but they made mistakes. Such a view naturally leads to the idea that we may be as inspired as the biblical writers, and perhaps even able to supplement or change the Bible's contents. On the contrary, John Murray wrote, quote, An examination of the biblical witness as to its character will show that a supernatural influence was exerted on the writers of Scripture, that this influence was all-pervasive, extending to every part of Scripture, unquote, and and that with, quote, no exceptions, unquote, or, quote, degrees, unquote, of inspiration, so that the Bible must be regarded, quote, as holy, divine, in its origin, holy is spelled W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy divine in its origin, character, truth, and authority. 
The Bible is the word of God. This view of the Bible is not an artificial doctrine imposed upon it by churches or theologians, but is the view of the Bible taught by God in the Bible itself. Unquote. Did you hear that? This view of the Bible, that is the view that all of the Bible is divinely inspired, not just parts or elements of it. This view of the Bible is not an artificial doctrine imposed upon it by churches or theologians, but is the view of the Bible taught by God in the Bible itself. Now, Omaha, this matter of God's sovereign ownership of and rule over the church is of relevance to the topic we're discussing here today because the manner in which professing believers answer the question, whose church is it, is ultimately what will determine our motives for either submitting ourselves or not to God's divine design for his church with regard to the role of women, and for men, for that matter, in his church. And make no mistake, people, the church is God's church. It's God's church. The 18th century Presbyterian minister and Bible commentator Matthew Henry put it this way, quote, Women must be learners and are not allowed to be public teachers in the church. The woman must exercise authority. I'm sorry. The woman must not exercise authority over the man, but is to remain silent. However, despite this prohibition, good women should teach their children at home the principle of religion. That is the principles of Christianity. Henry continues with this sentence. Timothy, the apostle Timothy, had known the Holy Scriptures from his childhood. And who taught him but his mother and grandmother, unquote. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are roles for godly women, women in the church. It's just that pastor and preacher isn't one of them. Right. Boss Omaha. Right. Well, as you, as you read that last quote from 18th century Presbyterian minister Matthew Henry, I, I'm imagining our detractor saying, see, that's, that's the problem. That's the problem right there. Y'all quoting from the men in the 18th century. That is exactly why y'all have this view that you all have, you know, I, I can hear them saying that two primary ideas, I believe, that have created this new environment of the embrace of women preachers. There are two primary ideas. One is feminism. Yep. And the and the other is sentimentalism. Oh, so you got fem, feminism on the one hand, sentimentalism bro, on the on, other. Bro. Let me let me break that down. I've, I've mentioned before the idea that women pastors, it's a it's a new phenomenon that is actually foreign to the pages of of scripture. Remember I gave the example earlier of, of no one can imagine Mary, the, the, the mother of Jesus, you know, trying to push Peter out of the way during Pentecost mm-hmm. because it was her time to preach. Nobody could imagine that. But in, in our day, that, that, that wouldn't be a stretch because of the fact that the, this n- new idea, this new phenomenon has kind of entered the cultural thought. So it wasn't until the mid 1800s that the concept of women abandoning traditional roles and cultural norms especially regarding the practice of ministry, became a thing. Mm -hmm. For example, on September 1847, America witnessed the first female minister, Antoinette Brown Blackwell. She was born May 20th of 1825 in Henrietta, New York, and she died November 5th of 1921. She was the first woman to be ordained a minister and, and of a recognized denomination in the United States. And her climb was as a direct result of that period's first wave feminism, right? The focus of first wave feminism was on promoting freedom for women with a focus on voting rights. The empowerment of first wave feminism came as a direct result of those who found fame as lecturers and writers 
and speakers during the abolitionist movement. Next was second wave feminism, which most historians believe began in the 60s and lasted for about two decades. The focus of second wave feminism was on equity in the workplace, right, which included Mm -hmm. the advocacy of abortion, which they call reproductive rights and the promotion of, of freedom from sexual constraint. This was once a standard in our society, sexual constraint, especially overt sexual constraint or overt sexual promiscuity, Mm -hmm. rather, was something that had become at the fore for women during the time of the second wave feminist movement. Later, we get to third wave feminism. Some now believe we're there now, while others believe there's a fourth wave of feminism actually taking root. Regardless of how you slice it, third and fourth wave feminism demands the deconstruction of any system seen as patriarchal. Mm -hmm. Uh, This wave of feminism isn't about being equal to men. It's about a lack of need for men as men are seen as the primary problem in a society that oppresses women. Feminists have witnessed their their ideology rather backfire here more recently as the transgender movement, who who are now allowing biological males to compete in sports on the same stage as biological women, uh, and and women suffer as a result. But that's Mm -hmm. another subject for another time. The impact of this relatively new phenomenon, and what I I mean by the new phenomenon is this, this, this feminist movement. Uh, the, the impact of this relatively new phenomenon on a 2,000-year-old New Testament church has not been lost. However, it's only been within the last 175 years since the days of Antoinette Brown and women coming to the idea that they need to obtain power from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. In the time we've witnessed this degeneration of Scripture on the issue of women in a pulpit, we've seen modern-day evangelicals virtue signal their progressive decisions to ordain women. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and that's a relatively new phenomenon as well. While examples of this abound, I can't help but remember the pronouncement from Rick Warren's Saddleback Church. You remember this, brother? Probably. On on May 8th, 2020, Saddleback Church took to Facebook to announce the following, quote, yesterday was a historic night for Saddleback Church in many ways. We ordained our first three women pastors, Liz Puffer, yep. Cynthia Petty, and Katie Edwards, end quote. Now, what, what usually follows these kinds of announcements are many people believing that the ministry is doing the, quote, right thing. Now, the basis of such moves are hardly anything scriptural, and it's primarily motivated by something more sentimental, which brings me to the second point I wanted to raise. The first thing that's having that's having impact is feminism, which I explained first, second and third wave feminism on the culture and its impact within the church. The second thing is sentimentalism. So I recently wrote an article regarding the ocean of sentimentalism that engulfs much of evangelicalism. And what I mean is that we is that we often are not moved to obey scripture as much as we're driven to follow that which creates the greatest sentiment. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're moved by our feelings. Right. Therefore, as the ground shifts, we all follow our feelings as we shift with it. This fact cannot be more true of the incredibly contentious issue of women preachers. In the article, I wrote the following. There's a difference between being sentimental having a warm thought about someone or something and allowing sentimentalism to drive your every decision. Mm-hmm. The problem with sentimentalism is that it begins with when rational thinking is abandoned in favor of one's feelings. Now in an article published by religious news service, they cite in 2011, a family matters survey 
Now, this study was a study done by, by Harvard and Notre Dame, or Notre Dame, uh, and surveyed 2,646 Americans. They asked the respondents how much they agreed with the following statement. And, and here was the statement, quote, women should be allowed to be priests or clergy in my house of worship, end quote. So that was the statement. So they asked the question, how many of you agree with that statement? What the study found was that three quarters of, of Americans actually agree with the statement. In other words, 77% of Americans agree with that statement. That includes two thirds, 64% of Southern Baptists. Wow. And, and 68% of Roman Catholics. That, that could accurately be described as, as strong levels of support, the article would go on to say. It, it, it went on to, 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 to make this statement. I thought this was interesting. Quote, Southern Baptist women in particular seem to be ready to accept women as pastors. Three quarters, 73%, a female Southern Baptist favor women in the pulpit compared to just 58% of Southern Baptist men. 58% is still too high. Still too high. But yeah, and half of Southern Baptist women, along with four in 10 men, strongly support women clergy. Now, this level of support is doing no small part to teachers like Beth Moore and Paula White and Victoria Osteen. And, and I, I don't even have the time to take us down the trail of black women right now who hold the title pastor in so-called black churches, m- marking the matriarchal leadership and the abandonment of fathers within black religious circles. That's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day to sum up feminism and sentiment. I'm sorry, feminism and sentimentalism are two things that are having the biggest impact and played a significant role in the embrace of the idea of women pastors. All of this goes back brother to the point that you made at the beginning, which is foundational to our conversation. Luke chapter six, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Bro, I appreciate the history lesson, man. I appreciate that. The young lady, uh, the woman who you mentioned, we go all the way back to the early 18, 1820s. What was her name? The mm-hmm. first woman minister? Uh, yeah, Antoinette Brown Blackwell. Yeah, Antoinette Brown Blackwell. Yeah, let's, let's look her up and, and, and do some research on her, uh, listeners. Yep. You know, Omaha, what, really what you're talking about, <clears throat> to sum it, all up is, 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 sum it all up is what Jay Gresham Machen referred to as liberalism. It's <laughs> right. uh, ecclesiastical liberalism. In his right, book, right. Uh, in, 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 in Jay Gresham mentions book, Christianity and Liberalism, he says this, quote, he said, the chief modern rival of Christianity is liberalism. The chief mm-hmm. modern rival of Christianity is liberalism. The modern liberal rejects the unique authority of the Bible. But what is mm-hmm. substituted for, what is substituted for the Christian doctrine, uh, Machen asks, what, when the modern, when, when, when the church uh, embraces modern liberalism. What is substituted for the Christian doctrine? What is the liberal view, still quoting Machen here, what is the liberal view as to the seat of authority in religion? The impression is sometimes produced that the modern liberal substitutes for the authority of the Bible, the authority of Christ. Now, don't miss that, folks. Machen says here that the impression is sometimes produced that the modern liberal substitutes for the authority of the Bible, the authority of Christ. He cannot accept, he says, what he regards as the perverse moral teaching of the Old Testament or the sophistical arguments of Paul. But he regards himself as being the true Christian because rejecting the rest of the Bible, he depends on Jesus alone. Now, let me pause right here. Omaha, how often have we heard that? 
I follow Jesus. Just preach Jesus. I don't need to pay attention to what Paul says. Paul's right. not Jesus. How many times do we see this on social media, Bert? Right. Uh, Paul, Paul's right. not Jesus. Right. Paul's not Jesus. This is exactly what Machen is getting at. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it right now today. He says the liberal Christian cannot accept what he regards as the perverse moral teaching of the Old Testament or the sophistical arguments of Paul. But he regards himself as being the true Christian because rejecting the rest of the Bible, he depends on Jesus alone. This impression, however, Machen says, this impression, however, is utterly false. The modern liberal does not really hold to the authority of Jesus. Even if he did so, he would be impoverishing very greatly his knowledge of God and of the way of salvation. The words of Jesus spoken during his earthly ministry could hardly contain all that we need to know about God and about the way of salvation. For the meaning of Jesus' redeeming work could hardly be fully set forth before that work was done. It could be set forth indeed by way of prophecy, and as a matter of fact, it was so set forth by Jesus even in the days of his flesh. But the full explanation could naturally be given only after the work was done. And as such was actually the divine method. It is doing it is doing despite not only to the Spirit of God, but also to Jesus Himself, to regard the teaching of the Holy Spirit given through the apostles, Machen says. Let me start that sentence again. It is doing despite not only to the Spirit of God, but also to Jesus Himself, to regard the teaching of the Holy Spirit given through the apostles as at all inferior in authority to the teachings of Christ. So Machen is saying, unquote, by the way, Machen is saying here that it is a fallacy to regard the teachings of the apostles as inferior to the teachings of Jesus. That's essentially what he's saying here. So he's saying that the the modern liberal can't argue that, that, well, I'm the true Christian because I just follow Jesus. Right. I just follow Jesus. So when Machen wrote about this decades ago, we're still hearing the same sort of narrative appended yes. to a lot of people's uh, excuse for not uh, following the, the apostolic writings for the same reason. Well, the true Christians, I just follow Jesus. Right. The idea, the idea there, man, is they've created a Jesus in their own mind, their own imagination. Right. I mean, this this is a Jesus that they're most comfortable with. And I, I mentioned that earlier in the, in, in the commentary. They've recreated Jesus in their own image and likeness, and that's the Jesus they worship. So anything that's stated, even if that statement comes from the Word of God, that contradicts the Jesus that they've created in their mind, they don't worship. Exactly. Exactly. This is exactly what Machen was saying. He said, that's a lie. He said their impression of that kind of Jesus is utterly false, Machen Mm -hmm. said. You know, Omaha, at the root of the the concept, okay, so we're talking about, I mentioned this term earlier in the episode. But at the root of the concept of egalitarianism is the idea of equality. Okay, equality is in that root, is a root word in that term, Mm -hmm. egalitarianism. The Oxford Dictionary defines egalitarianism as, quote, the belief that everyone is equal and should have the same rights and opportunities, unquote. Now, listen to that definition closely. Egalitarianism, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is the belief that everyone is equal and that everyone should have the same rights and opportunities. Now, based on that definition of egalitarianism, Omaha, I want to suggest to our listeners that the idea of ecclesiastical egalitarianism in the church 
specifically as it relates to professing Christians who believe that women being allowed to preach from the pulpit is a matter of equality rather than the authority of Scripture is in many ways similar to the logic that drives critical race theory, or CRT. Uh-oh, uh-oh, you getting ready to step in it. Because that's what we do here on the Just Thinking Podcast. <laughs> <Don't you step laughs> in it. Come a, on, it's preacher. A, it's just, it, the, the, the logic behind ecclesiastical egalitarianism is, egalitarianism is the same logic that, that drives critical race theory. The same rationale. The same rationale that drives and fuels the narrative of critical race theory is the very same rationale that gives life to the narrative that promotes egalitarianism in the church. That, Preach, that is, preacher. That, that, that is that equality is the common thread that runs through each of those philosophies. Wow. Equality is a, is a, is a, is a, is a common thread in, the, in the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical egalitarianism, if I can get that out. Right. Right. Equality is the same thread that runs through critical race theory. But right. you see, unlike the term critical race theory, I want to introduce a new term to our listeners and call this critical pulpit theory. Come on and do it, theory. man. Come on. The term I want to call this again? is critical pulpit theory, or CPT. <laughs> unlike critical race theory, we have critical pulpit theory, not CRT. Critical pulpit theory. CPT, critical CPT. pulpit theory. I got it. Critical pulpit theory is built upon the same faulty premise of inclusion and equality as is critical race theory. Under the guise of egalitarianism, and remember the definition of egalitarianism, egalitarianism that I gave earlier, critical pulpit theory misinterprets Scripture's prohibition against women preachers as inequality. Yes. And on the basis of that misinterpretation, it proffers a hermeneutic in which Scripture's prohibition against women preachers and pastors is viewed through the social justice lens of inequality and patriarchy. You see, but contrary to popular opinion, Omaha, and buckle up because what I'm about to say is going to blow some people's minds. Contrary to popular opinion among evangelicals today, the church is not where you come to find equality. Hello. The church is not where you come to find equality. Now I'm going to come say on, that again. On. I'm going to say that a Go third ahead. time. The yeah. church is not where you come to find equality. If mm. you're looking for equality, don't come to the church. In fact, the church, by definition, is an institution that is built upon the idea of inequality, not equality. And when I say inequality, I mean inequality in the sense that the just died for the unjust. That's 1 right. Peter 3.18. Inequality in the sense that he who knew no sin became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Inequality in the sense that a sinless Jesus stood in our place and bore our wait, sins Wait, 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 wait. You got to start this again. You just dropped a bombshell. Okay, bro. I'll be glad to, bro. Yeah, you got to. you got we in fact, we need to queue up. We need to queue up the Hammond <laughs> because you are preaching right now. And I don't think anyone has truly wrapped their mind around what you just laid out. I mean, first of all, you dropped the new terminology, critical pulpit, critical theory, pulpit theory. Okay. And then, and then you explain how that's, it's, it's very similar because of the faulty hermeneutic that's been picked up, that, that, the, that what the Bible is saying about women pastors is, is, is inequality. Right. So we've got to somehow fix it right. apart from what Scripture reads. Right. Uh, and, and then so we insert critical pulpit theory in an effort to do that. Right. And, and, we, and we, we convolute things. 
next you went on to say the church is not where we come to find equality in the first place. Right. And so you got to go back. You got to go back, unpack that a little bit, and then take us through. And I'm I'm gonna get my my, my brother in post. He, he's got to queue up to Hammond. Yeah, I'll say that again. The church is not where you come to find equality. It's not. So for you to argue that this whole women preacher issue is a matter of equality, no, stop, quit, stop. It's not a matter of equality. The church is not where you go to find equality. Okay, now, and I argued this, Omaha. This is my thesis. It's just the opposite, actually. The church is where you. The church is not only where you don't come to find equality. The church, by definition, is built upon the the principle of inequality, the concept of inequality. And when I say inequality, let me give you this context. This is the context I mean. Inequality in the sense that the just died for the unjust. First Peter 3.18. Now, do you really want equality there? Right. Inequality in the sense that he who knew no sin became sin for you. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Do you want equality there? A sinless Jesus, inequality in the sense that a sinless Jesus stood in our place and bore our sins on the cross. That's 1 Peter 2.24. Inequality in the sense that while you and I were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's Romans 5, 8. Inequality in that it was surely our griefs that he bore and our sorrows that he carried. That's Isaiah 53, 4. Inequality in the sense that he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 5. Inequality in the sense that all of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah 53, 6. Inequality in the sense that before Jesus was nailed to a cross for your sins and mine, he was beaten about the head, spat upon and mocked. That's Mark 15, 19. You see, Omaha, the church of Jesus Christ is not where you come to claim your rights. No, my friend. In fact, if you belong to Christ, you have no rights. None. Scripture states quite emphatically and unambiguously that every believer in Christ has been bought with a price and that we are not our own. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. It is not to the church of Jesus Christ that one comes if you wish to exalt yourself. On the contrary, the church is where you come to die to yourself and to what come you on, think man. you deserve or have a right to. Come on, man. The church is where you come to die. Not to exalt yourself. The church is where you come to give in order to gain, to be humbled in order to be exalted, to come serve on. rather than to be served, to lose rather than to gain. The church is where you come to prostrate yourself on your face in a heart attitude of worship and adoration of the one who is deserving of all glory and honor for bearing the punishment of your sins on a cross. Come on, man. Now, it's in light of that reality that I want to quote from one of the great theologians of old Princeton. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, better known as B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield was known as the Lion of Princeton, and he said this, quote, Mm. It belongs to the very essence of the type of Christianity propagated by the Reformation, that the believer should feel himself continuously unworthy of the grace by which he lives. At the center of this type of Christianity lies the contrast of sin and grace, and about this center Everything else revolves. This is in large part the meaning of the emphasis put in this type of Christianity on justification by faith. It is its conviction that there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot be accepted at all. 
This is not true of us only, quote, when we believe, unquote. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to him or to God through him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in the Christian behavior may be. It is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. There is never anything that we are or have or do that can take his place or that can take a place along with him. We are always unworthy and all that we have or do of good is always of pure grace. Though blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, we are still in ourselves just miserable sinners, miserable sinners saved by grace to be sure, but miserable sinners still, deserving in ourselves nothing but everlasting wrath. That is the attitude which the Reformers took, and that is the attitude which the Protestant world has learned from the Reformers to take toward the relation of believers to Christ, unquote. That was B.B. Warfield. Now, along those same lines, John Calvin said this, quote, Now, the great thing is this. We are consecrated and dedicated to God in order that we may thereafter think, speak, meditate, and do nothing except to his glory. For a sacred thing may not be applied to profane uses without marked injury to him. If we then are not our own but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee, and where we must direct all the acts of our life. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will, therefore, sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. In so far as we can, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let us let his wisdom and let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Unquote. Thoughts on Mahal. Man, powerful section. I, there were quite a, quite a number of Hammond B. Three moments in that piece, man. And uh, your concluding thought was just powerful where you maintain that the church is not where you come to claim your rights. You know, it's where you lay yourself down based upon the recognition of your sinfulness that required Christ's death, right? Exactly. Um, we have no right to assert, to, to, to assert our rights in Christ's church. It's the height of arrogance and narcissism to maintain anything else. Next, man, you introduced us to two new terms, ecclesiastical egalitarianism uh, and, and critical pulpit theory, right? <laughs> Bro, I thought, I thought the, the critical pulpit, pulpit theory was, was actually brilliant. It absolutely brilliant. I want to pick up where you left off with critical pulpit theory, because much like critical race theory, critical pulpit theory has a detrimental impact, particularly on the quote-unquote black church. I put the black church in air quotes. Let's go, bro. Let's go. I use the terminology because I know that that it will be helpful to provide a category. But in the same way that critical race theory has a detrimentally negative impact, 
not simply on all of culture, which it mm-hmm. does. It has an it has a specifically deleterious impact mm-hmm. on the black church, on the black community Come in particular on, with regard to critical race theory. So I want to bring it I want to bring it full circle as it pertains to the quote unquote black church. I know I know you've heard the saying because I've heard this same saying, too. I know you've you've heard this, Daryl, when white folks catch a cold, black folks catch pneumonia. You've heard yep. that said before. Yep. Yeah. So for those who don't know, allow me to put you up on something that you that you might not have heard regarding disparity in the black community. It's the idea that when blacks or or, or when when a, when things are bad for one group in this in this instance, when things are bad for for white people, those same issues are to the destruction of another, particularly black people. And so that's the that's the the cultural vernacular that that's going on in the in the black community. While I reject the idea that this has anything to do with melanin in the skin, I do believe that it has something to do with cultural norms and practices mm-hmm. within certain groups. For mm-hmm. instance, in, the, for in, in this instance, the so-called black church. But, but allow me to make this case. In, in November of 1963, we had Lyndon B. Johnson. He becomes the 36th president of the United States after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Now, remember that the 1960s, earlier I mentioned that how that was the start of second wave feminism mm-hmm. and what yep. it had to offer in freedom for women from the sexual constraints that dominated society, right? Feminism equated female empowerment with sexual freedom and it promoted promiscuity and guilt-free sexual experiences. The battle cry during that time was was free love. That was their battle mm-hmm. cry. Now Johnson would pass uh, President Johnson would pass the Civil Rights Act of 64. And shortly after that, in 65, you've mentioned this on a, on a particular episode, the Moynihan Report. Yep. Remember you walked us through From that, 1965, Darryl? yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, 1965. This report was entitled The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, and it exposed the devastating impact on the free love culture mm-hmm. upon the black community. At the time of the report, this was in 1963 when they were gathering the data, mm-hmm. single black motherhood rate was at 26%. Right. So remember the adage when whites get a cold, blacks get pneumonia. Mm -hmm. This this adage seemed to hold regarding people's poor decisions who were suffering from the impact of poor economic outcomes. Now, rather than examining the decisions that are made by individuals, liberals in the in in, in, and those who are part of of, of Johnson's uh, cabinet, if you will, uh, those who are part of are part of the political uh, uh, wheelhouse, if you will, they they blamed Jim Crow discrimination and discrimination for 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 poor choices that Mm -hmm. were actually being made by individuals. So so rather than look at individuals, say what what kinds of things are they hearing from the culture that's causing them to have an out of wedlock birth rate? What they said was, well, it's the reason for that is because of Jim Crow Mm -hmm. and and poor and and Mm -hmm. Jim Crow and discrimination. So the Moynihan report looked at the lack of jobs for black men as the reason for fatherlessness. And they decided that government should step in to help. Now this report and cultural momentum regarding civil rights were the catalyst for, for Johnson's great society. Yep. Now the great society was president Johnson's domestic agenda to eradicate poverty and provide racial equity. There's the term again, racial equity. Mm-hmm. Now I, I know this seems like a far cry from where we are currently, but I promise you I'm making the case. So I'm going to ask you to, to stick with me as new welfare programs stepped in to fill the gaps. Government incentivized payments to single mothers, increasing their monetary reward. They did so as long as fathers were not in the picture. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, this was the new war on poverty. It had long lasting and devastating impact. 
Culturally, it incentivized women to believe that they did not need a man. And it softened the consequences of having an out of out of wedlock childbirth. Furthermore, the culture of free love lessened the stigma associated with single motherhood and having that child out of wedlock. This combination witnessed an increase of single motherhood in the black community, ultimately reaching 77 percent by 2015. So you have 77 percent of children in black in the black community born born to mothers out of wedlock. This is 2015. That's almost eight out of every 10. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Let me let me just interject this. Sure. Go for it. Poverty never got anyone pregnant. (laughs) That's right. Okay. that's right. Poverty absolutely never got anyone pregnant. Absolutely. I'm going to leave that right there. Absolutely. Before 1960, the black church was the backbone of black culture. As civil rights became in vogue, something began changing. Pastors began to focus on civil rights and politics rather than gospel proclamation. And, And many believe Christianity to be the catalyst for a movement rather than the advance of Christ's kingdom. Here's where I bring it full circle. Pastors left the pulpits for political organizations. In addition, the Black Panthers and, and the Nation of Islam, including Malcolm X, began, in, in, uh, began indicting the black church as do-nothings. So they, they, they were looking at the black church uh, in the era of Jim Crow and, and, and discrimination and say, well, y'all, y- y- y'all aren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. After the assassination of MLK, many became disillusioned about what the church could provide regarding social change and justice. Now, as free love and free money flowed and the need for black men and flowed into our community and the need for black men began escaping the consciousness of many, the door was left wide open for men hating women to step into the void created by this loss in the church. Brilliant point. Brilliant point, Vert. Now, this process didn't happen overnight. However, the seeds were in place that witnessed the exodus of black men from churches. Man, come on. And then women who outnumbered them four to one are actually returning to those churches. Wow. Now, given this history, we shouldn't be surprised when we see the surge of particularly black women serving as pastors in pulpits. Most of these women promote ideas like critical race Mm -hmm. theory, as they've already advanced critical pulpit theory, Mm -hmm. the word that you mentioned, in order to obtain their position of power. Nowadays, many are, 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 are comfortable with seeing women like Priscilla Schreier, Juanita Bynum, Jacqueline McCullough, and many other black women grace pulpits on Sunday morning mm-hmm. preaching sermons while giving little thought to, what, to the idea that what they're engaged in is not biblical. Finally, let me give you an example of critical pulpit theory as expressed by Pastor James Henry of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Norfolk, Virginia, in an article entitled Practicing, Practicing Liberation in the Black Church. Here's what I want you to listen for as I quote from this article. What I want you to listen for is two things, critical race theory having impact on the on the term that you just introduced, Daryl, which yep. is critical pulpit theory. Mm-hmm. So listen to listen to his terminology that 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 screams critical race theory yep. and then see how it impacts critical pulpit theory. OK, he says this in his article, quote, sexism against black women should be addressed by black theology and the black church. Women in black churches outnumber men, uh, outnumber men by more than two to one. Yet in positions of authority and responsibility, the ratio is reversed. 
Though women are gradually entering ministry as bishops, pastors, deacons, and elders, many men and women still resist the fear that, that, uh, of that development. Uh, st- still resist fear and, and that development. Let me continue. Black theology, listen to what he says here. Black theology and the black church must deal with the double bondage of black women in church and society. Yeah, that's that. If, if, go, go ahead. ahead, v. Go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt your quote, but see that that's that's liberation theology applied to the pulpit. Absolutely, that's, that's critical pulpit theory right there. Critical Absolutely. pulpit theory. I I I I want. I found I found the quote when 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 you when you when you inserted this term, I immediately thought about this this quote. It plugged it in because it it what it does. Is is it, it validates and solidifies everything you're saying about critical pulpit theory. Mm-hmm. Critical race theory had infected the church. Yep. And then out of it comes critical pulpit theory, which which causes them to believe that they need to advocate for black women in the pulpit. Yep. So let me continue continuing to, to, to quote uh from from Pastor James Henry. He says this. Two two ways they can do two ways that they can do so two ways that, in other words that they can serve black women who who want these roles two ways they can do so are first treat black women with the same respect as men this means that women who are qualified for ministry must be given the same opportunities as men to become pastors and to serve in such leadership positions as deacons stewards trustees etc second. Theology and the church must eliminate exclusionist language, attitudes, or practices, however benign or unintended, in order to benefit fully from the talents of women, end quote. Now, what you're witnessing in that language should scream to you of critical race theory. It should, it's, it's all of liberation theology. The idea of black theology in the black church, all of that is liberation theology. That's James Conian liberation theology language. And what it, what it, what it presents to us in the trajectory of, of what happened in black culture and society is what you talked about, which is critical pulpit theory. And so I, I know that was a lot in the way of history, but I wanted you to get a picture from from a cultural standpoint of how in specifically within black circles, how what's happened in society has eventually seeped into church culture. That's the advance of critical pulpit theory. Verse, that was a masterful job, bro, of bringing that full circle, bringing that full circle. And, and let me just go off script here and just say for one second. Um. First of all, I want our listeners to understand, and you explained this uh, earlier, Omaha, you gave context to the term black church. Okay. Yeah, we know there's only one church. We get it. But what you have to understand is how that term was derived. You have to understand the genesis of the term black church. There's a history that's connotated with that term. We don't use it in a separatist, con- separatist context. Okay. There's a historical context in which the term Black church exists. Okay, so please understand that context as Virgil is using that term or as I use that term, not only in this episode, but outside this episode. You may see us use the term on social media. We may, we're going to always use the term in quotations. Okay, we understand there's only one church. We get it. But there's a historical aspect to the uh, genesis, the origins of um, black ecclesiology in America that needs to be understood. Okay. Now, that said, the shackles, if you will, giving that the black church was founded out of slavery uh, in America and the uh, 
the refusal or the uh, the uh, prohibition, if you will, uh, against black Christian black Christians worshiping together with their white brethren is what gave right. rise to a separate black church. Right. Okay, we're talking early 1700s with Richard Allen and the founding of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME denomination. Right, right. But notwithstanding that history, I have to say this, notwithstanding that history, and and, and verse, this is going to tie back to the history lesson that you just gave us. Notwithstanding that history that that gave rise, that served as the genesis of the black church in America, more, more than 200 years later, the pulpits of black churches are still preaching a hermeneutic of slavery. They're still yes. preaching a hermeneutic of oppression. They're still yes. preaching a hermeneutic of deliverance, of exodus, still looking for Moses. They're still looking for Moses to bring them out of this, um, this, uh, this Egypt, if you will, in quotations I say that, this Egypt of oppression here in America. They're still, li- they're still preaching liberation. That liberation yeah. is always, it is always socioeconomic. Always. This is why it's important for you to read James Cone. It's important for you to read James Cone. It's important for you to read people like him. Because what Cone wrote in the 70s, this was being preached in the pulpits of many urban black churches here in 2021. Right. They're still right. preaching and, and- that same liberation theology that was preached in the pulpits in the early days of the AME church in America in the early 1700s. And, and the, re- the reason, the reason Daryl, that, that, that they get away with that here, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd argue, I'd argue around, around 1960, the reason why they get away with that is because of the, uh, because of the nature of what I just set up. Government comes in and, and begins to pay money, right. To right. black women telling them right. not to marry black men. Uh, that that they'll get more money from government. So, in other words, black women begin marrying the government, uh, and 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 disconnecting from black men. The the family structures totally totally dissipate, to, to, totally destroyed. Uh, and 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 still, you got pastors bringing in gospels uh, that 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 don't empower, uh, that have no power, right? right. Because they're not connected they're to salvation. They're connected to the next paycheck. Well, you're going to get that breakthrough next week, uh, next month. Mm-hmm. You're waiting on the breakthrough. And so, you know, you're still waiting on breakthroughs from the 1960s based upon a check that you got from government. And and so the only uh, the only time that that the church gets excited about something or angry about something is when government who they've been married to de- determines they're going to cut them off or stop providing right. for them. And 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 then and then they get they, there's a rally cry and they embrace the next best thing. They don't embrace scripture. What for the most part, many and and I, and I need I need to categorize this. Not all, not all, not all. But 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 many begin holding on to the promises that government provides rather than the promises of God. And right. that's that's a big part of the problem. Yeah, they they replace God with Gov. Absolutely. This is why I'm so dogmatic, man. Whenever I hear somebody want to blame the problems of the black community on economics. No, it's not. Like I said earlier, poverty never got anyone pregnant. Absolutely. Poverty never got a single person present. You know, add to add add to add to that this, brother. When when you go back and look at the timeline and, and history and recognize that that prior to the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, the 20s, 
that we actually had higher marriage rates. We had we had a, a, a better family structure. Folks got married, stayed married, stayed together. And, and though they didn't have much, they did well. What happened? Culture began to shift mm-hmm. as this second wave of feminism took place. And, and the, the sexual constraint that dominated society was no more. And so folks, folks, they, they cast off off restraints and they do whatever is right in their own mind. You know, when you talk about the word feminism, Omaha, I want to re- take our callers, our listeners, rather, our listeners back to a term you used earlier. You used to, you've used it several times, actually, in this episode so far. You've used yeah. the term womanism, womanist. Right. See, let me go ahead and define that. A, a womanist is a black feminist. Yes. Okay. A woman. Don't call a black feminist a feminist. You must call a black feminist a womanist. Okay, because. In liberation theology, there's the overall black liberation theology um, ideology, but then there's a separate lane of that that applies to black women. Okay, so black female liberation theologians or those who subscribe to black liberation theology who happen to be female prefer to be referred to as womanist. Okay, Mm -hmm. so those are womanist, womanist. So you have liberation theology, then you have womanist theology. Okay. Just want to give some definition around that verse, but thanks again, bro. You know, I said earlier that this issue of women preachers is not really a matter of complementarianism versus egalitarianism. Right. In fact, this matter would be more accurately described in terms of complementarianism versus compartmentalism. Okay. <laughs> complementarianism versus compartmentalism. Now, what I'm mm-hmm. saying here is that the two perspectives on this matter of women preachers which have been traditionally placed under the banners of complementarianism and egalitarianism are best understood in terms of those who accept the teaching of the apostle Paul in first Timothy two twelve within the context of second Timothy three sixteen. That is that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof or correction for training in righteousness. So a complementarian accepts that. And those who refuse to accept it by compartmentalizing Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 2.12, simply because they happen to not agree with it. So you have your complementarians who accept 1 Timothy 2.12 within the context of 2 Timothy 3.16. And then you have the other side, you have the compartmentalists. Okay. You have the compartmentalists. Okay. You have the compartmentalists who say, well, no. I disagree with that. So they don't accept it. They don't accept 1 Timothy 2.12. That's what I mean by distinguishing comp- complementarianism, which is biblical, from compartmentalism, which is unbiblical. So when you think about it objectively, Omaha, we're all compartmentalists to one degree or another, when you really think about it. Every one of us, every believer is a compartmentalist to one degree or another. Every sin that you and I choose to commit, and every sin is a choice. Every sin we commit is an act of spiritual compartmentalism and that in the act of committing that sin, we willingly choose to set aside God's commands. We compartmentalize God's commands for the sake of satiating our own fleshly desires and and affections. So we're all to one degree or another a compartmentalist when we sin. Right, right. But as it relates to this matter of women preachers, my argument that compartmentalism is unbiblical is rooted in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2.15, where the Apostle Paul writes this, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Yes. 
us is plural, not singular. Paul didn't say whether by word of mouth or by letter from me. He said, or by letter from us. What Paul is saying to the believers in Thessalonica is that his teachings, as well as those of the other apostles, hence the prepositional phrase from us, are to be received as authoritative whether those teachings are communicated by word of mouth or by letter, which is what an epistle is by definition. It's a letter. And that includes the epistle of 1 Timothy, which consequently includes chapter 2 and verse 12. Mm-hmm. Now, to help crystallize my point even further, another example of compartmentalism within evangelicalism is professing Christians who accept the Bible's teaching that homosexuality is sinful in God's eyes, as 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and then 1 Timothy 1, 10, but who suddenly change their minds when one of their children or a close right. friend or an acquaintance right. or a close relative, quote-unquote, comes out, if you will, as being homosexual or lesbian or transgender. That's another example of scriptural compartmentalism. When they know someone who's, who fits under that category of homosexual or lesbian or transgender, now all of a sudden they have to change their mind. And what the Bible says is that they don't believe that anymore. It's compartmentalism because it takes certain teachings and doctrines of Scripture and compartmentalizes them on the basis of a subjective situation or circumstance or one's personal perspective or position on that particular teaching or doctrine. That's precisely what's happening with regard to this matter of women preachers. Professing believers, both male and female, are compartmentalizing Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 2.12 to fit their own personal perspective and paradigm with regard to whether women should be allowed to preach or hold the ecclesiastical office of pastor. Mm-hmm. Now, the beloved Welsh theologian and pastor D. Martin Lloyd-Jones had something to say on this issue in his Stop. book titled Studies on the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Lloyd-Jones had to say from his book, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount. Quote, in many ways, the root trouble, even among good evangelicals, is our failure to heed the plain teachings of Scripture. We accept what Scripture teaches as far as our doctrine is concerned, but when it comes to practice, we very often fail to take the Scriptures as our only guide. When we come to the practical side, we employ human tests instead of scriptural ones. Instead of taking the plain teachings of the Bible, we argue with it. Ah, yes, we say. Since the Scriptures were written, times have changed. Dare I give an obvious illustration, Lloyd-Jones says. Take the question of women preaching. I'm still quoting Lloyd-Jones here. Wow. Take the question of women preaching. I think it's interesting that Lloyd-Jones here used as his illustration the issue of women preachers. Yeah. Lloyd-Jones says, take the question of women preachers and being ordained to the full ministry. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, prohibits it directly. He says quite specifically that he does not allow a woman to teach or preach. Ah, yes, we say. As we read that letter, he was thinking only he was only thinking of his own age and time. But, you know, times have changed since then and we must not be bound. Paul was thinking of certain semi-civilized people in Corinth and places like that. But still quoting Lord Jones, but the scripture does not say that. It says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. 
Ah, but that was only temporary legislation, we say. Paul puts it like this. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Paul does not say that it was only for the time being. He takes it right back to the fall and shows that it is an an abiding principle. It is something that is true, therefore, of the age in which we live. But thus, you see, we argue with Scripture. Instead of taking its plain teaching, we say that times have changed. When it suits our thesis, we say it is no longer relevant. If you want to avoid terrible disillusionment at the day of judgment, face Scripture as it is. Do not argue with it. Do not try to manipulate it. Do not twist it. Face it. Receive it and submit to it, whatever the cost, unquote. That was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones from his book, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount. Lloyd-Jones nailed it. He nailed it, Omaha. He said, Mm -hmm. we argue with scripture when it suits our thesis. Now, it should go without saying that Lloyd-Jones is absolutely right. That's that's compartmentalism defined. Arguing with scripture when it suits your thesis. But God has clearly spoken through his apostles on this matter of women, pastors, and preachers. But such is the arrogance of our sinful hearts, Omaha, that as people who, as B.B. Warfield, whom I quoted earlier, said, should feel continuously unworthy of the grace by which we live, we would dare to present to God, who is the founder and builder of the church, a self-centered thesis about who has the right to occupy the pulpits of his church as if God owed us something. Right. Now, Pastor John MacArthur deals with that kind of prideful attitude when he says this, quote, Christians who think the church exists to serve them should stop, take heed, and repent. Self-styled believers serve God as they see fit. They are not motivated by God's glory, nor do they feel compelled to honor his commands. Their Christian practice is according to their own preconceived notions rather than the objective parameters of Scripture. A self-styled approach to worship is repulsive to God. When people with this attitude enter the church, God moves out. God demands more than the mere performance of his commands. He expects that we do what he wants, the way he wants, and with the heart motive that glorifies him. Unquote. That was John MacArthur from his book titled Fool's Gold, Discerning Truth in an Age of Error. Now, needless to say, Omaha, God doesn't owe us anything except his wrath for the innumerable sins we've committed against him. And yet here we are arguing over an issue, a matter that clearly scripture has clearly dealt with as if the church belongs to us and and as if we have the right to tell God how his church ought to function. Thoughts, man. What are your thoughts on that? Man, a number of things as we we kind of go back through. I, I was writing down some notes as you were kind of speaking. Let me let me get to some some of the prepared uh statements and then I'm gonna do some some one offs. I believe that I believe that uh while the Bible uh has specific categories, right? Uh the Bible doesn't allow the believer to compartmentalize what it has to say, right? Yep. 
we, we definitely believe in biblical categories. We, we have those biblical categories for the observance of things like, like the Sabbath. But, but the idea that we can, we can use compartmentalization of what the Bible makes specific and clear regarding women preachers is deeply problematic. And there's a reason why. That reason is because there's no compartment given by Scripture for such a category as women preachers. Bingo. Right? Yep. Scripture knows nothing of women pastresses or, or pastrixes. Uh, these are made-up categories for the purpose of compartmentalization. And, and I, I think you've made that point incredibly well. I, I loved what you did as you walked through uh, Martin, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones's sermon, uh, or, or there was a book, rather, titled right. Studies on the Ser- of, the, of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. I thought that was brilliantly, it was interesting that he took up the issue of women preachers because it, it would have been at his time when, when you had first wave kind of feminism right. kind of taking its hold and, and, and women beginning to feel like they wanted to, 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 to go into more aspects of culture and, 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 and kind of present themselves in a, in, in a light that, that, uh, that would challenge the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And so he he dealt with it head on. And again, I, I look at men like him. You mentioned uh, John MacArthur. Uh, I, I remember that I was you and I were there uh, at the Truth Matters conference when he was on a, on a plat- platform and and got kind of kind of chided about a particular uh, subject matter about women and preachers and Beth Moore and, and and the comments that were made out of that. But then he goes on in an effort to really unpack the issue behind women preachers Mm -hmm. to preach one of the most, probably one of the most comprehensive and and, and brilliant sermons that I remember hearing uh, entitled, does the Bible permit a woman to preach? And uh, I'm I'm sure that that was watched by hundreds of thousands of people and multiple, multiple times. I know I watched it a number of times and I would encourage listeners to go back and, and, and to, and to pull that up and to listen to, and watch that. The other thing I appreciate is is the boldness by which he speaks about these issues. It's funny how in our current context, and I kind of joked about it early on when 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 you'd uh, initially jumped into a, a quote where, and I th- I think you were talking about where someone had said, uh, you know, uh, it, it's best for a woman to be silent. I think that was I think that was uh, Charles Haddon's. Uh, that was Spurgeon, Haddon's yeah. Spurgeon. That was Spurgeon. Yeah. He said, w- w- "Women are best when they are quiet." men who speak like that nowadays are shouted down. But the reality is women, women weren't trying to usurp the authority of these men in those, in those particular positions of, 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 uh, uh, I'll say, I'll say it this way. Women weren't trying to assert their positions of power in ecclesiastical environments. Let me, let me say this too. And and I'll, and I'll turn it back over to you because I I don't want to belabor the point. and And I think we've, we've done some good work here. As far as making this point clear, I, I was listening to Dr. Josh Bice, my pastor, talk about this subject uh, as it pertains to to women, and and, and you know the, the the book chapter and verse we've been quoting from First Timothy two. He he said, "Let the, let the women learn." Right, the, mm-hmm. the, the scripture talks about. Mm-hmm. I do not allow a woman to 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 teach or exercise authority over a man, but but to remain quiet. But the idea there that they were allowed to learn, they were allowed to be in the space quiet for the purpose of learning. And you, that, you, you know who else was it? You know who else was quiet in that space? Who's that? Everybody, right? Everybody. <laughs> Everybody was a learner. Everybody was Absolutely. quiet in that space. Absolutely. For the, for the purpose of learning. What's unique about the Christian worldview 
is that it provides equality, right? The, the equality that we're all human beings created in the image of God, having distinct value, dignity, and worth that are equal, but that we do have different roles, yes. that there is a different role for a woman to play in that environment, though she's equal in her value, there are specific roles that she is to play in the, in, in the ministry of, of the church. Uh, and, and one of the things that, again, unique about the Christian worldview is that it allowed women to come in and to be learners. Yes. Right. Right. That, that we overlook that component uh, automatically. It's it's well, she should have been able to learn and she should have been able to do this and she should be able to preach. Well, hold on a second. Who, who in, in, in what way are you commanding or demanding rights for, for a church that actually belongs to Christ? It's the it's the body of Christ. Right. Uh, we have to uh, approach this with great humility. And there is, even with men, there's a separation that takes place regarding men who are qualified right. for the role of elder. Not all men are qualified right. elders. Uh, but but you don't see men jumping up and down, falling out and panicking and passing out because every single one of them can't be, even though they may have an ability to teach, there may be some other issues or areas where when their lives are examined, they don't qualify for a role as an elder. Uh, and, and we understand that we come to the church with great humility that, that Christ called us into his church, into his ecclesia to begin with. And as the called out ones who are a part of his church, we serve in the manner that he sees fit. Uh, we, we don't seek uh, position and power for the purpose of our own ego. Uh, that, should have, that should have been buried at the foot of the cross. What we should be seeking is the service of the body of Christ in the way that Christ has ordered. And we understand that on the basis of what Scripture has to say. Amen, bro. Amen. You know, Omaha, primary reason uh, many professing Christians are so sensitive about this matter of women pastors is that they personalized the church to such a degree as to reduce the office of pastor from its ecclesiastical prominence mm-hmm. so that it is centered on the individual as opposed to being centered on Christ, who's the head That's of the church. That's so good, man. That's so good. And what, and what Christ has decreed and declared in terms of the pastoral office and function. And let me just digress here for one second. We got a lot of pastors out there right now, even men. I don't, I don't even classify women as pastors. Well, for the sake of what we're talking about here, when you have someone, whether it's a woman or a man, unqualified in the pulpit, right. what they've forgotten, see, they've, they've, they've transposed ownership of that pulpit. They've transposed ownership of that pulpit to, from God to themselves. Right. Hello. Right. It's somewhere within their cerebral cortex or whatever that part of the cranium is the brain. Right. Right. They've convinced themselves that this pulpit belongs to me. Right. 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 It's my pulpit. Right. It's my, no, th- see, that's what's happened there. So that's what I mean when, when I say that, 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 uh, a, a primary reason many cr- professor Christians are so sensitive about this issue is because they personalize the matter of the pulpit. Mm-hmm. They've reduced it to a personal issue. They've reduced it from its ecclesiastical position and reduced it to something personal. Now, consider that in, in, in light of what the late Dr. R.C. Sproul says in his book, Truths We Confess, a systematic exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Dr. R.C. Sproul said this, quote, he says, today, when people discuss what it means for Christ to be head of the church, some contend that it means only that Christ founded the church. 
The New Testament likens the church to a human body, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. And it is in this metaphorical context that Christ is called the head of the body in the sense that the head rules the rest of the body. The head or the mind or the brain controls everything that happens in the earthly tabernacle. So Christ is the head in the sense that to him is given the authority to rule over his church. Come on, we are man. to li- oh, hold up, bro. Go ahead, go ahead, bro. I said, I said, come on, come on, come on. Let me repeat that sentence. Sproul yes. says this: the head controls everything that happens in the earthly tabernacle. So Christ is the head in the sense that to him is given the authority to rule over his church. We are to live in submission to him. It bears repeating that the church's mission, identity, and agenda are to be determined not by the church, but by the church's head. We are to be subordinate to Christ as the head, the Lord of his church, unquote. This Dr. R.C. Sproul from his Truths We Confess, a systematic exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, early in this episode, Omaha, I referenced the rhetorical question Jesus posed in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Right. And as we prepare to close out this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast, that's where I want to end. I want to end right where I began. As I've said several times now, this question of women preachers and women pastors is not a difficult one to address. It is not some baffling ecclesiastical puzzle in which quantum theological principles must be applied in order to be resolved. Okay? No, it's simply a matter of submitting or not to the authority of Scripture and what Scripture clearly teaches concerning this matter. Now, the idea that any professing believer would take offense at what Christ, through his apostles, has ordained and decreed regarding this matter is quite honestly dumbfounding to me, particularly when a professing believer considers what it cost Christ to bring him or her into his church to begin with. Now, perhaps a reminder is in order here. Listen to these words from the great German theologian of the 16th century, Martin Luther, from his lectures on Galatians, as cited in the book titled Crucified and Risen, Sermons on the Death, Resurrection, and Ascension of Christ by John Calvin. Luther is quoted in that book as saying this, quote, Through the death of Christ we are blessed, that is, justified and made alive. As long as sin, death, and the curse remain in us, Sin damns us, death kills us, and the curse curses us. But when these things are transferred to Christ, what is ours becomes his, and what is his becomes ours. Let us learn, therefore, in every temptation to transfer sin, death, and the curse, and all the evils that oppress us from ourselves to Christ, and on the other hand, to transfer righteousness life, and blessing from him to us. For he does, in fact, bear all our evils because God the Father, as Isaiah says, has laid on him the iniquity of us all, unquote. Martin Luther, from the book written by John Calvin, Crucified and Risen, Sermons on the Death, Resurrection, and Ascension of Christ. Now, three other quotations I want to leave our, our, our listeners with. This, is by, this first one is by Arthur Hildersham, who lived from 1563 
1631. This is from his book, Christ's Directives on the Nature of True Worship. Arthur Hildesham said this, quote, While men think they serve the Lord, they serve the devil if, they, if the worship they offer to God is not grounded upon his word. Hello. Wow. While men think they serve the Lord, they serve the devil if the worship they offer to God is not grounded upon his word. That was, that was Arthur Hildesham. Another quote is from Joshua Moody. That's Moody spelled M-O-O-D-E-Y. Joshua Moody lived from 1633 to 1697. This quote is from his book, Vain Imaginations in the Worship of God. Joshua Moody said this quote, It is lying worship if not warranted by God's word. God will not say of it, bring me no more vain. I'm sorry, God will say of it. God will say of it, Bring me no more vain oblations, nor will God take it unless nor will God take your worship unless it agrees with the pattern in the mount and be prescribed by the Lord of the house. Unquote. That was Joshua Moody. So Moody is basically saying this is unless your worship is prescribed in the word of God, it's vain and God will not ex- accept it. This third quote is from Dr. C. Matthew McMahon from his book, Five Marks of a Biblical Church. Dr. McMahon says this, quote, God's church is never given the warrant to form new doctrine, but to discover, preserve, and propagate the word. To do otherwise is to reject God's means of grace, and he is never in religious exercises which he has not scripturally prescribed. Unquote. Dr. C. Matthew McMahon from his book, Five Marks of a Biblical Church. Now, to expand briefly on that quote from Dr. McMahon, there are some evangelical egalitarian compartmentalists, perhaps some of whom are listening to me right now, who say, well, what's the big deal about doctrine? Doctrine just divides, just preach Jesus. Well, my response to those individuals is to quote from the mid-20th century Dutch Reformed theologian, Baron Klaus Kuyper better known as B.K. Kuyper, last name is K-U-I-P-E-R. B.K. Kuyper, in his book titled The Church in History, said this, quote, Is doctrine important? Many people today do not like doctrine. They say differences of opinion about doctrine have caused much debate and controversy. They say that the many divisions in the church have been caused by debates about doctrine. Doctrine, they say, is not so important after all. What is important is a good Christian life, so runs the argument. The effect of this kind of talk has been very bad. In many churches, ministers teach the people and the children very little doctrine. The result is great ignorance of Christian truth. The theory that doctrine is not important is not only shallow and foolish, it is also crafty. It is one of the devil's best tricks, unquote. That was from Baron Class Kuyper, B.K. Kuyper from his book, The Church in History. Now, as I close, let me just say this. There is no room in Christ's church for critical pulpit theory. As I've said repeatedly, the church isn't about you or me for that matter. The church does not exist for our personal glory, but for the glory of the one who is the head of the church, namely Jesus Christ. And again, in the spirit of Luke 6, 46, 
I will close this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast Omaha with this poem titled simply The Scriptures, which this poem was penned by the 18th century British minister Joseph Hart. Hart lived from 1711 to 1768. And Hart was brought, interestingly, this is an interesting factoid, Joseph Hart was brought to faith in Christ under the ministry of George Whitfield. Wow. Now, many people who listening to me may be familiar with who Joseph Hart is because Hart wrote the very familiar hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. You guys may be familiar with that hymn. Well, Joseph Hart wrote that hymn. He also wrote this, this poem. It's titled The Scriptures. Please listen closely to these words. And listen in light of everything that you've heard Omaha and I talk about in this episode of the Just Thinking Podcast on women preachers and how this is fundamentally an obedience issue. This is the poem, The Scriptures, by Joseph Hart. Say, Christian, wouldst thou thrive in knowledge of thy Lord? Against no scripture ever strive, but tremble at his word. Revere the sacred page to injure any part. Betrays with blind and feeble rage a hard and haughty heart. If aught there dark appear, bewail thy want of sight. No imperfection can be there, for all God's words are, are right. The scriptures and the Lord bear one tremendous name, the written and the incarnate word. In all things are the same. For Jesus is the truth as well as life and way. The two edged sword that's in his mouth shall all proud reasoners slay. What does thou, why dost thou call him Lord? And what he says resist. The soul that stumbles at the word offended is at Christ. The thoughts of men are lies. The word of God is true. To bow to that is to be wise. Then hear and fear and do. Omaha, what you got? Man, that was a great way to close the episode with a focus on, I mean, you touched on it, um, yeah, we, we, you and I would, would say the, the regulative principle of worship, right? And that, that is, what does Scripture have to say about worship? Well, what Scripture says is that which we do. You know, some are practicing the, the normative uh, uh, principle, which says, you know, if, if Scripture doesn't forbid it, then it must be okay. It must be normal for me to be able to do. And then you, you've got the abnormal, right, <laughs> principle, uh, which is, if scripture says don't do it and I feel like it, yep. regarding women preachers, I'm going to do it. Yep. Um, and, and, and again, that the whole mindset around that is absolutely wrong. And, uh, and, and, and I love the way that, that you closed out with the scriptures, uh, the, the, the poem called The Scriptures by Joseph Hart, because we, we need to get back to scripture. We need to be focused upon scripture. Uh, we need to to believe that scripture is sufficient to 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 rule our lives and our worship uh, and inform us for how we, we're to live in every way, shape, and form. So, man, it's been good to get back behind the microphone, man. Before I I close with a word of prayer, you got any any thoughts you wanted to add to? Again, I, I just want to I just want to say to our listeners again: this issue of women's preach women preachers and women pastors is not a complicated issue. No, it's not complicated at all. We've complicated it, but that doesn't mean it's complicated. This is, an, this is an obedience issue. 
This is a simply a matter of submission to the authority of Scripture. It's that simple. You're either going to submit mm-hmm. to what the Scriptures say or you're not. That's it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, brother, it's been good to be with you, man, for another episode of the Just Thinking Podcast. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father God, we give you thanks and praise. We, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Uh, we worship you. We adore you. We are uh, beholden to the truth of your word. Uh, help our hearts uh, to tune itself. Uh, to that word, those who hear what we share and agree, those especially who hear and disagree. Uh, may any word that we share that's outside of your truth fall flat to the ground, but every word of yours uh, penetrate the very hearts of those, your people, to the degree that they will ever be conformed into the image of your dear son. We're grateful for the sacrifice of Christ, for what he has done on our behalf, And it is through that sacrifice that the church, the body of Christ, is actually established. So as we conform ourselves to that very image, may we be mindful of the fact that we are indeed a part of that body, of of those called out ones, uh, and that we're to advance the purpose of of the kingdom of God here on earth. Uh, And and we do long for your return. Uh, We pray for it uh, daily. I pray that, uh, that all of those who don't yet know you, come into a saving knowledge of you this day upon hearing this very uh, podcast. Uh, we, we, we ask you by, by your spirit to draw them unto yourself as we proclaim your death, burial, and resurrection uh, for the purpose of, of us repenting of sin and placing our faith in you. Those who've done that, uh, Lord God, are yours. Those who have not, we pray, Lord God, that by your spirit, you draw them even in the hearing of, of this podcast unto yourself using this means by which to do so. And may they find a, a church that they can plug into that are beholden to your word, uh, that they can continue to find light and life in it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Love you, bro. Good being with you, man. Always Again. a pleasure, my man. Until next time, thank you for listening to us on the Just Thinking Podcast.